You are listening to the Radio Rebel Nulak podcast, where we discuss the possibility of a better world. We're anti-war, anti-racist, and always anti-capitalism. But we are for stuff as well. We are pro-choice, pro-ending poverty and food poverty, pro-healthcare for all, regardless of legal or migration status, pro-ending the stigma of mental health, pro-a sustainable environment, and a better, more equal and tolerant society for all. And if you want to get in contact, it's radio.revolulak at gmail.com. Which, welcome to the Radio Rebeluna podcast with me, Danny Coffey. This is the second episode in the series in which we'll be discussing imperialism. Imperialist atrocities and cover-ups are written into the tapestry of Irish history. Last year was the centenary year of Krog Park Bloody Sunday. We have had Bloody Sunday in Derry. As recently as last year, it was uncovered that the British state colluded with the infamous Loyalist Glenan gang in the murder of innocent people. Also late last year, the British state refused to hold an inquest into the murder of solicitor Pat Finucane. However, in the first segment of the podcast, I'll be talking to a comrade from the Socialist Alternative in Sydney, Australia, Eleanor Morley, who has written about Australian Special Forces war crimes in Afghanistan. And I'll just give a plug to Red Flag, the Socialist Alternative newspaper from Australia. It's got great content, international matters, and if you haven't been reading it already, give it a Google and... Uh, subscribe to it. But Eleanor, we'll dive straight in here on this. Can you tell us when these allegations came to light with regard to Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan and the public reaction to that in the immediate term? Yeah, so about um, five years ago, a woman called Dr. Crumpet was commissioned to um, write a review of the internal culture within the Special Forces of the Australian military. And after talking to soldiers for a couple of months, she started to hear horrific stories of war crimes, summary executions, and much more from the people she was talking to. So this started an internal investigation that was uh, top secret that started four years ago. But over the past maybe two or three years, some of these stories have come to light in the Australian media uh, thanks to whistleblowers um, who are either there in Afghanistan um, or who heard the story secondhand from other people. And about a month ago, uh, that report was finally released to the Australian public, but it was incredibly redacted. So all we know so far um, is the stories that we have heard leaked from people on the ground there. And they have been stories of 14-year-old boys having their throats slit and being thrown into the river. They're stories of innocent civilians being brutally tortured and murdered by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan. There's stories of people's houses being blown up, of military uh, dogs being used to torture prisoners, and of an ingrained practice of blooding, where new soldiers uh, were encouraged to shoot and kill prisoners uh, to, to quote the report, to get their first kill. So really it's systematic murder and torture of innocent, uh, innocent Afghans at the hands of the Australian military 
uh, for some years. And the Australian state, the authorities, what was their reaction to this to begin with? Yeah, well, when these stories started to be leaked, um, starting in about 2017, the knee-jerk reaction of the Australian elite, uh, be they, you know, ex-defence minister, ministers, the Murdoch media, etc., uh, was to deny the extent of the crime and to persecute the people responsible for leaking this information. So anyone who uh, discussed this was branded, you know, a traitor. How dare you say this about our heroes, our boys in Afghanistan? Um, and actually, one of the key whistleblowers, a lawyer called David McBride, is still facing trial, um, a military trial um, for the allegations that he's made against the special forces. So that was the response for the first few years of the elite. Um, but with the report coming out a month ago, they obviously had to change their tune a little bit because the evidence was so damning and so systematic that it was no longer really, um, you're not going to get away with just trying to entirely cover it up. So there were, um, uh, it, was a, it was a different tap from the leaders around that point. So instead, they started talking about, you know, kind of a few bad apples, like there's a problem with some soldiers, uh, there's a culture problem amongst some squadrons here or there. Um, but overall, they claimed the military as a whole is still honourable um, and has to be defended, whereas I think the evidence uh, and what has been obvious to anti-war activists for years and years and years is that this isn't just the problem of a couple of dozen soldiers. It's a problem of the Australian military in the first place being sent to fight an unjust war on the other side of the world, um, especially using soldiers who are literally trained to kill, trained to be dropped into villages round people up and shoot them. So none of that is being discussed by our leaders, of course. Um, and now, I'm not sure if you could hit the media over there, but there was a, a bit of a controversy here in Australia a week or two ago when a, a Chinese artist put up a, um, an image, an image he'd created um, uh, on the internet of a Australian soldier splitting the throat of a young Afghan boy kind of draped nice. in an Australian flag. And, yeah, and instantly the, the the prime minister here, all the political parties started condemning this. And even though the image isn't real, it doesn't pretend to be real. It actually does capture a practice that happens there in Afghanistan, which was Australian soldiers are murdering children. There seems to be the narrative now. I, I watched. Uh, is it Alistair Campbell? He's the head of the defence forces over there. He put out a statement that condemns non-commissioned officers and it was low-ranking, that's the narrative that he seemed to be putting out. Is that the, the narrative that's been swallowed by the Australian public? Yeah, well, the media at least. Um, and I think this is what this, the second report differs from the first one, because what the first one found was that um, soldiers are saying to her that there's, there's no way the higher-ups couldn't have known. Um, so it was clearly you know, a systemic problem in the military that ran all the way to the top. But now, this time round, they've been at pains to say... No, it was just amongst the lower-ranking levels of the special forces uh, and maybe um, some of the patrol commanders, so the people directly there on the ground with them. So they're denying that there was uh, any other knowledge further up the information train, which when you just, when you see the evidence of how systemic these crimes were, uh, it's impossible to imagine that that's the case. Just going back to, you mentioned a solicitor there that's up in charges for bringing this um, in, into the public eye. Is he still up on charges now after the Berriton report and the Crumpets report? And he's still going to be prosecuted for bringing this to light. 
Well, as of today, I guess he is. Um, and, you know, a few people here in Australia have been pointing that out, that all the allegations made have proved to be absolutely correct. Uh, they're all contained uh, within the Brereton report. Um, you know, he's done everyone a service by bringing all of this to light while, you know, all the other higher-ups higher are trying to oversee a cover-up. But no, he's still facing trial so, and possible jail time. And the people that committed these crimes, the actual physical murders of um, Dad Muhammad and uh, the Afghan people, uh, I think it was a 35 of them, is it, in the report that was mentioned? Are they going to face any charges or any consequences at all? Well, some of the crimes have been referred to the Australian Federal Police, but uh, what the uh, Australian Home Affairs Minister and what others have said is that it's very likely that the next stage of this process, which is criminal prosecution, could actually take up to 10 years. Um, many of the soldiers who have been accused of crimes have still been serving uh, in the Australian military and in the Special Forces, even though these allegations started to rise about five years ago. And it's, I think it's quite likely that, or it's, it's definitely quite possible that nothing will happen to them. You know, none of them will ever get convicted. But I, I can't say that with any certainty, but it certainly won't be a quick process. Yeah, I was reading the, the is it the, the memorial, the war memorial, um, the president of it or something like that. He's actually going to pay for the defence of these soldiers should they go to trial. Is there that type of elitist people kind of still supporting the war criminals? Yeah, there has been. Um, actually, the, well, the ex-president of the Australian War Memorial, Brendan Nelson, a few years ago, he was one of the most kind of rabid defenders of the Special Forces when the allegations started to come out. And even now, over the past month, still a few uh, very wealthy, very powerful Australians who are saying they will cover the legal costs um, of any future court cases and are still defending uh, defending the soldiers. And the Australian public, the general public now, after the Barrington report, the Crumpets report, even though it's it's heavily redacted, are they appalled by it? They're on the on the side of they obviously have sympathy with the Afghan people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think most people could not have sympathy with the Afghan people. Uh, when you saw these allegations, also there's actual footage of some of this. One of the, um, uh, like an Australian um, uh, journalist program, aired footage of, like headcam footage of a murder of an innocent Afghan man on television earlier this year. So a lot of this stuff has come right out into the public eye, though, and I think people were quite rightly very outraged by what they saw. There's not been a massive response on the streets or anything like that. There's not been mass rallies. Uh, against war crimes in Afghanistan, there were some rallies called in uh, some of the major cities around the country, but I think all in all, people are pretty horrified by, by what they've seen. Yeah, that was the Four Corners documentary. I, I watched that, and it yeah. is horrifying. It's it's just blatant murder. There's no, and that guy continued to serve within the within the military, and I, I I don't know if he's still in there, but he was even even when that report came out, he was still in the military. Was there any backlash? One of the um, whistleblowers, Braden, um, what was his, I forget his name. Was there any backlash from the, the establishment against the whistleblowers? Because we had a case here in Ireland um, where one of the, on Garda Kona, which is the police force here, there was a illegalities within the police force. And they tried to frame him. Uh, they 
got the social services involved to basically say that he was a child abuser and all that. Of course, this all comes out that he's, he's innocent, but there was a backlash, like, you know, try to, to make him out. But there were so many guards who came out against it. Was there anything like that happened to any of the whistleblowers in that blew the whistle on the special forces in Australia? I mean, the ex-soldier you're referring to who was on the Four Corners report, as far as I'm aware, nothing's, um, nothing's been brought against him, but I think that's because his report was much more recent. So he spoke, um, you know, when it has actually become clear that this report was going to be released in a few months' time and the evidence would be fairly damning. Um, so the state had kind of changed tack by that point. But there's three Australian journalists who have been uh, trying to uncover this stuff and investigate it for about three years. And last year, two of them who worked for the, uh, the ABC, the public broadcaster, they had their homes and offices raided by the Australian Federal Police. Um, and then one of them was told that he was facing um, criminal charges. Now, they've since been dropped. Uh, it was announced just after the report, Brereton report was released that they've been dropped. But... Yeah, <laughs> they had their homes and stuff raided last year. So that's just crazy. Yeah. And the, the uh, Cromfitts, well, I forget the woman's first name. Cromfitts. Did she suffer any abuse from the from the Australian establishment for her findings? Yeah, there was a backlash against her some years ago. A lot of it kind of sexist or as though she was meddling in places where she shouldn't be, um, you know, saying stuff she shouldn't be saying. That was the reaction from quite a lot of people when this first came to light in the public a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, so kind of mansplaining the whole situation. But, um, and the you were saying there's there's been no rallies on, on the streets or the public haven't come out on the streets on it, but the Australian anti-war movement, is it gaining momentum because of this? Not immediately. I mean, I wouldn't discount the effects that this could have next time Australia announces that they want to go to war somewhere. But I think importantly, the um, stuff that's come to light recently, it's a vindication of what the anti-war movement were arguing when the war began. Um, because and I'm sure this is true all around the world. But when the West invaded Afghanistan almost 20 years ago now, uh, they did so under the guise of humanitarian intervention. You know, that they wanted to go save innocent um, Afghan people from the Taliban. They wanted to protect women. They wanted to protect children, et cetera, et cetera. The anti-war movement said at the time, this is uh, rubbish. They're going, you know, it's just another episode of um, imperialist invasion. It will result in the deaths of many, many, many innocent Afghans. And we should all oppose this war uh, from every corner of the globe. And now that argument took hold quite strongly later in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq, but not not in 2001 with the invasion of Afghanistan. And the anti-war movement was quite small back then. But I think, the, and you know, it's not just this month that we found out about these kind of crimes. It was, um, you know, Abu Ghraib. It was, you know, we've been hearing 15 years about the awful things happening in Afghanistan. So I think that it's another example that it's always right to impose, uh, to oppose imperialists uh, intervention abroad. I remember, I think it was about 2003 here in Dublin, there was 100,000 people got out into the streets against the invasion of Iraq. I think in London, there was a million people uh, on the street and just ignored it. Uh, the, the, the imperialist establishments of, of the various um, uh, 
Now, Ireland's a neutral, well, a seemingly neutral country, even though we allow planes to fly in, uh, US planes, uh, military planes to fly into Shannon, refuel and go off to Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or wherever. But a million people in the streets in London and still that that wasn't you know obviously there, there was a big reaction to that um how do you see see it uh, for in australia australian terms in the um will it uh, will there be a big big reaction if because i see i was listening to the the alistair campbell and he was talking about cleaning out the military for when we have to go to war again i i, I paraphrase but that's the the general gist of what he was saying and there was also that officer, is it Hasty? He gave an interview on one of the networks down there, and he was saying the same same type of narrative that basically we'll clean out the few bad apples and, you know, we'll, we'll have our, to defend our, our freedoms and all, all that. I, I, I don't know why invading Afghanistan has that to do with defending Australian freedoms, but or any other place for that matter. But that's the general narrative he was putting out. Will that be swallowed again by the by the Australian people, or would there be a backlash over it? In any, can you see that happening in any big way? Uh, yeah, look, I hope not. I mean, also in Australia in 2003, there were a million people on the streets against the Iraq War. I was I was in primary school at the time, so you know I wasn't an activist back when that started. But even I remember it. It was such a massive thing here. We talked about it in school. It was the biggest rallies ever in the history of Australia. It was a massive anti-war movement here at the time. Uh, and a million people, bear in mind that back then the Australian population was only about 20 million people. So really, really, really significant. But um, I think that the reaction of Alistair Campbell, Scott Morrison and others to the Brereton Report is exactly that. It's a PR stunt um, to try and flick away any deeper or more serious criticism of the Australian military at a time when clearly, globally, imperialist tensions are rising, you know, and very likely there could be uh, a war sometime, somewhere, a more serious war sometime in the medium-term future. So they want the image of their military to be, um, you know, quite high in people's eyes. So I think that's why they're trying to kind of whitewash over really deep and real crimes of the Australian military. And all I can say as a socialist is that next time they announce a war, because there will be a next time, there always is under capitalism, there's a mass, serious anti-war movement that can oppose it. And the Australian left, as it's grown, as it's got significant numbers now to uh, counteract the right-wing propaganda, because we have, I, I was looking at, the there's a, a podcast, of the Red Flag podcast, uh, you've one up on the mantra uh refugees that are stuck in a a route where we have a a system here called direct provision basically where if refugees come here um that you're put into a basically an open prison and given 35 euros uh, a week uh you have right-wing groups going around saying that they're economic refugees even though there's stuff like this going on in afghanistan if you look at the Four Corners report uh, from Australia, uh, there's other other crimes coming out from the other military forces over there too, like the United States and, and Britain. But there's a narrative going around from the far right that are saying that, oh, this this is, uh, they're economic migrants. They're all men that, that are coming over. 
and all of this. Is there, is there a right-wing narrative, a far-right narrative growing in, in the United States or, or, sorry, in Australia, or is it, um, or is the left gaining ground there? Well, the global far-right actually takes inspiration from the Australian state uh, in terms of what they think should happen to refugees. I don't know um, how much you or your listeners would know about it, but Australia has, for decades now, had one of the most cruel and horrific policies towards refugees. Um, people who try and get up by boat, people desperately trying to save their lives, their families' lives, are locked up. It used to be in detention centres um, here in Australia. Now it's on detention camps on offshore islands in the Pacific, and they're left there indefinitely. So there's dozens and dozens of refugees in Australian, essentially, concentration camps uh, who have been locked up for seven or eight years uh, with, you know, no idea when they're going to be free. It's one of the uh, most horrific um, aspects of the Australian state and racism in Australia. And the global far-right obviously cheer it on, and that's seen from both sides of the political spectrum here, both our kind of social democratic and centre-right party have both been pioneers of that horrific policy. But then on the flip side of that, obviously not every single person in Australia supports that and cheers that on. So there's been, you know, a refugee rights movement here uh, for a number of years, campaigning to try to free the refugees. And then uh, this year, particularly in Melbourne and Brisbane, uh, there have been some quite sustained protests um, out the front of hotels where refugees are being locked up. So hopefully that's something else we can see in the future, more of a kind of revival of uh, the refugee rights um, movement, movement in this country. Yeah, because the Labour Party in Australia, like it's no more than here for so long. We've had uh, two, two and a half party states, yeah, two right-wing parties. But the Labour Party since, well, definitely the 80s, uh, I think Bob Hawke, uh, when he came in, it was, um, it, 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 there's not very much difference between them and the Liberals on, and they will use that kind of racist uh, rhetoric as well. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but the socialist alternatives, you have some councillors elected, and and uh, but the the movement is growing anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. I think that's the thing everywhere. You know, capitalism's in pretty deep crisis, and I think there's been a politicisation, particularly amongst young people um, all around the world. And in Australia, we have we yet to see mass resistance, mass rebellion on the scale of somewhere like France. But I think there's definitely been a politicisation here, um, especially amongst young people, when refugee rights is, tends to be one of those... I mean, it was for me, it was the issue that I politicised around when I was uh, quite a bit younger, and I think we're just starting to see more of that again now. Brilliant. Well, Eleanor, thanks very much for that, and much appreciated, and I'll let you get on with the rest of your evening, and I'll head off to work. Thanks, Danny. Uh, only under a socialist reorganization of society can we even begin to deal with these basic material problems. To say nothing of eradicating the individualistic, competitive, racist mentality of the people in this country. Only after I feel a redistribution of the wealth in this country, only after we eradicate the exploitation of man by man, can we begin to build a humane Staying with the topic of war and the atrocities that come with it, we're going to turn our attention now to the United Nations. My guest was the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator in Iraq from 1997 until 1998, 
In 2003, he was presented with the Gandhi International Peace Award in recognition of his work drawing attention to the plight of the people of Iraq. After a 34-year career at the United Nations, where he'd reached the post of Assistant Secretary General, he resigned in 1998 of the Iraq sanctions, characterising them as genocide. Since then, he has been involved in various peace initiatives such as Shannon Watch. You're very welcome to the podcast, Dennis Halliday. Thank you very much, Danny. It's been 24 years, or is it 24, 23 years since you were in Iraq? Can you give us a bit of background into the sanctions and um, what it was doing to Iraqi society? Yeah, well, the, the sanctions imposed on the people of Iraq by the Security Council, driven particularly by the Americans and the British, was devastating because it lasted 13 years and completely undermined the education, the food supply, agriculture, water systems, electric power, and so on, uh, over a very long period. And uh, it came on top of the 1991 so-called Gulf War, where the Americans bombed public infrastructure in violation of the Geneva Conventions. So, for example, electric power supply collapsed. The uh, network of telephone communications network was destroyed. So they began at a very low point, um, although they, in theory they had huge oil revenue, but of course they weren't allowed to sell the oil and bring in revenue to keep the country turning over as it had been in the past. The reason behind the sanctions, was there the idea that there was going to be some type of, I, I suppose, middle class uprising or a coup would have got rid of Saddam? Was that the idea behind the, at the was that the thinking that, behind the security, well, the United States and and Britain's uh, thinking. Was that the narrative that they were putting across? Yes, I think that is largely correct. Despite the fact that Saddam Hussein and the military were given a green light by the Americans to invade Kuwait because it was a local issue and the United States said they weren't going to get involved, despite that, he became a huge threat to the Middle East uh, particularly the Gulf states, perhaps. And, of course, they'd already had this war with Iran, which was on hold. A treaty had been signed. But he was deemed to be a threat to the interests of the United States, largely oil, oil production, oil revenue. Iraq was a very large part of the oil uh, production part of that part of the world. So they, they used sanctions. Now, sanctions are a very blunt instrument. Saddam Hussein was not impacted by sanctions, but 25 million Iraqis were children schools collapsed, education collapsed, the budget disappeared, and Saddam had invested 30, 40 billion into roads, into schools, into hospitals, into education, into um, into housing for workers and all the rest of it. So he, he'd done a very good job, but he was still a threat to the American interests in, in, in that part of the world. At the time, I believe the Iraqi army was the fourth largest army in the world, which was probably brought up by by the United States and Western interests in their war against Iran. But um, you were involved with the, the food for oil. How, how did that work? Uh, that was, was that, um, what was the me- mechanism behind that? Yeah, uh, let me explain. Before that, let me say, uh, the military was, was large. I'm not sure it was that large, but it had been financed both by the Americans, who also financed the military capacity of Iran, I think uh, they were hoping that perhaps they would wipe each other out. So rather a strange uh, background. But um, it was an effective force. There's no question about that. And certainly one of the most effective in in the Middle East. Um, 
The Philadelphia Food Program came into effect in 95-96 when the Iraqis reluctantly agreed to give all of their oil revenue directly to the United Nations. And in turn, the United Nations would use that money, A, to compensate uh, the people of Kuwait, the country uh, and the business people and so on who'd lost during the military uh, attack and the damage done thereby, and to... Um, to finance my own office, which would be sorry, became my own office in Baghdad to oversee this program. And what we did was we used oil revenue to import, with working closely with the with the uh, excellent uh, uh, Iraqi government, first-class ministers and, and civil servants, to import uh, food supplies and and basic needs for education and healthcare. Uh, in addition for 25 million people. That's the largest humanitarian program ever seen in the world. But, but of course, what makes it unique is that the money did not come from the United Nations or the rest of the world. The money came entirely uh, from Iraqi oil sales controlled by the United Nations. This would have been driving Iraq in, into poverty if they had been able to sell on, on the market at the time. That would have... Um, food for oil, even though it was... You mean that there was food and it was going to give sustenance to, to Iraqi children. Did it have the effect, that, the desired effect that it was supposed to have? No, because of course it, it didn't impact directly on the men and women who'd made bad decisions, such as the invasion of Kuwait, for example. They, they were above uh, that, the issue of sanctions. It's just the regular people and particularly children. I mean, the American ambassador to the United Nations on NBC 60 Minutes in 1965 said, yes, it's true, we have killed 500,000 children, but we think it's worth it. It's worth it to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So that gives you an idea of the, the purpose and, and the drive of the British and the Americans to destroy this country, and they certainly did. And the response to the, the Ba'ath Party as a whole, was there factioning within it in response to the sanctions or, or were they all kind of singing from the one hymn sheet? Yeah, the Ba'ath Party was, um, had probably two or three million, um, a membership of two or three million. If you were a civil servant or a teacher or a lecturer, you were likely to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. You could be Sunni, you could be Shia, but the majority may have been Sunni. And this was something that grew out of Syria and became common also actually in the West Bank of, of um, of, of, of Palestine, but it was a, a, just a, a governmental philosophy uh, of a, a democratic system, which perhaps we wouldn't recognize as, as our own here in Ireland, but it's, it certainly worked extremely well for the country. And this, this country ran beautifully. I mean, at the time before the sanctions were imposed, the medical services of Iraq were comparable to Italy. And UNESCO, the education agency of the UN, also felt that the education system had become extremely well done. And this was all out of the Saddam Hussein government and the Ba'ath Party. The military, likewise, was another very important establishment. And many of they, their troops would have, been, would have been members of the party also. Another thing they were dealing with at the time was depleted uranium and the effects that's had on, um, on Iraqi children and civilians. It was uh, documented in the documentary Paying the Price, Killing the Children of Iraq, which you were involved in. How much were, were people affected by 
the depleted the use of depleted uranium in in Iraq. Yes, depleted uranium being a nuclear weapon is, is of course illegal. It's a violation of international law, Geneva Conventions, and the Americans had only developed this capacity in the 80s, 90s, and I believe it was used for the first time in the so-called Gulf War when they drove the Iraqi forces out of Kuwait into the southern part of Iraq. And they used DU shells, particularly on, on the military tanks of the Iraqi government, uh, Iraqi army. And these shells tip with depleted uranium, which is a byproduct of the nuclear industry and has the twice the density of lead and can burn through heavy metal, and these were Russian tanks, four inches of heavy metal. This, the shells would go straight through them, perhaps not like a knife through butter, but close to it, and then explode inside the tank, blowing up the munitions already in the tank, and 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 creating <clears throat> perhaps billions of pieces of um, nu nuclear waste uh, particles, which then people inhaled into their lungs, or went into the water system, or went into the ground and into the root crops. So three, four, five years after this, these DU munitions were used, we found in, in Basra in the south of Iraq, and, and, and I met dozens, hundreds of children in the north, uh, in, in Baghdad, who had uh, leukemia from exposure to nuclear waste and nu nu nuclear particles. And in adults, it seemed to be mainly thyroid cancer. But the Americans and the British both have never quite admitted to using DU. I think they're embarrassed by the consequences and the fact that it was an illegal weapon. But it is a reality, and now it's used in many parts of the world. I would say recently in Syria, for example, uh, in, uh, in North Africa as well. Just in the last few minutes, you know, there's, there's been bombing of uh, civilian infrastructure. There, we've You've brought up uh, the the starving death of of children, uh, five hundred thousand children, half a million children. Uh, the the use of depleted uranium. Was there any investigation by the Security Council, or was there any um, talk of admission of guilt, so to speak, to any of no, this? I, I should add, uh, Danny, that the um, the half million children in the mid nineties, which of course grew to probably a million by the end of the 90s. Um, they did not die entirely, of course, from depleted uranium exposure. They died from, from malnutrition. Uh, babies were dying very uh, young. Before the, uh, the Gulf War, um, the birth rate in, in Iraq was 50 deaths over 1,000 live births. Thanks to the United Nations sanctions, uh, the, the death rate became 150 over a thousand live births. And because the Americans had destroyed the water water system the, uh, due to the lack of electricity, people were drinking water from the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. And of course then waterborne disease became another hazard, particularly for young children and babies. And in, in unfortunately in Iraq, breastfeeding was not in, in vogue. And they were using uh, perfectly good uh, you know, uh, baby food but mixed with contaminated water. So that, that accounts for this huge loss of uh, life in very young uh, Iraqis. But was there any, any acknowledgement of this from in, in the Security Council? Was there the UN Security Council? Did they, was this brought up on, on occasion? Well, you know, to... well, yes, well, well certainly the, the members of the, the Security Council, uh, for your listeners, uh, includes five 
permanent members. Uh, that's um, China, Russia, France, Britain, and the United States. And they, they call the shots, they control the Security Council. And it's a huge, in my view, a huge problem for the United Nations, because what happens is that the people, these five veto powers, they are the people who manufacture military weapons, who sell military weapons, and who tend to be the most aggressive when it comes to interfering in other people's countries, as we've seen in Korea or Vietnam, North, uh, in Libya, in Syria, Iraq, in Afghanistan, and many other places. So we have the warmongers in charge of peace and security, because peace and security is the mandate of the Security Council, whereas the, whereas the General Assembly, which has 193 members and works on the democratic basis, it, it deals with all the other issues. So we have a huge uh, fly in the ointment, you might say, when it comes to the United Nations and the Security Council. So the the council with the five permanent members discussed, I know the Russians and the French did not support the sanctions, neither did the Chinese, but the the argument was an argument and no more because with veto power, they couldn't stop the British and American program of sanctions on the people of Iraq. Of course, the United States has sanctioned unilaterally by themselves because they've got the global reserve currency like how much is how much of a like they they seem to have the what would you call it uh hegemony over over the whole situation even though the other others have quite a quite a big say in it as well H- how dominant are the united states in that in well you know period? this this is this is a phenomena that grew out of the second world war thanks to the prosperity and the energy of the united states they provided the weapons to the Russians to fight on the same side. They um, supported England and, and Britain, of course, as well. And they, they financed and supported the um, uh, Chiang Kai-shek in, in, in China. So after the war was over, when everybody else was wiped out, including Britain, uh, the Americans had huge productive capacity. They had a large amount of money, and they, they took on the role of, I think, a policeman of the world is, is the, word, the word you hear or leader of the free world, or things like that. And they, they took on a responsibility that I think is way beyond their capacity. And we've seen it crumble to a certain extent under the present administration in Washington. But they, there is a feeling that the American, amongst Americans that they have this responsibility. NATO, is, the fact that NATO still exists is due to that American concern and interest worldwide. It's a dangerous situation. I, I would classify it as neo-colonial ambition or neo-imperial uh, interests. And as we know, there's something like 800 military bases around the world. Uh, so countries like China are completely surrounded. So it's a very, it's a dangerous situation to be in. And let's hope Mr. Biden has a, a way of dealing with it, perhaps withdrawing this uh, danger to the rest of us and nuclear weapons, of course, in particular, which are littered across the globe in the hands of all the five of those uh, veto powers in the Security Council. At the time of Iraq, though, there was no balancing power. The the Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, you had perestroika. China wasn't the power that it is now. And there was nobody to tell the United States or, or Britain to stop uh, at that time. Would that be, that'd be a fair assessment uh, from 91 to about 2003? Anyways, that would be the... Yeah, at the, end of the, at the end of the Second World War, France included was destroyed. So there was, there was no opposition to American growth and prosperity and interest in a world management program, which is not the word they would use, but it's, it's what happened. And, and General Eisenhower, 
who was a very successful part of the, I guess, the collapse of the uh, the war. Um, he he warned the American people that the industrial, um, military, uh, media power in the United States was dangerous, and that the the government need to be very careful. Uh, they didn't listen, unfortunately, and of course Eisenhower has proven to be right. With sanctions, though, looking at Iraq and I suppose looking at at sanctions, since they don't really work. You know, there's two there's two tiers. You've got the the people like Saddam and the Baathists, the leaders of the Baath Party, and then you have um, the ordinary people that that this affects more yeah. so. Well, I mean, I, I worked with ministers of the Saddam Hussein government every day when I was living in Baghdad. These are fine, extraordinary people with master's degrees or PhDs from Britain or France or maybe the United States, and and they 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 were wearing the same shirt or the same suit year the, for the for the whole year or so year and a half I was there. They were they were suffering also, and the and they were taking the basic food rations for themselves and for their children. I mean, every every individual, every member of the 25 million population had access to the basic foodstuffs that we provided under this oil for food program with Iraqi money. I, I has, hasten to add, but everybody suffered. And I can't say I, I didn't observe Saddam Hussein himself, but it was a very painful process to see the country fall apart. And this was a very proud, proud, proud people uh, with wonderful education, wonderful health care. In fact, the Irish government or the Irish um, private sector was hugely important in, in, in the uh, health sector of, of, of Iraq. And of course, when the money dried up, um, they all withdrew. So when I went to the hospital to look at children dying of the consequence of, of DU, dying of leukemia, the mothers were the now had become the nurses. So mothers were sleeping on the floor beside their dying children. I mean, it was a catastrophic situation. I think John Pilgers, a film, a, a documentary you mentioned at the beginning, shows some of that um, some of that story. So, in my view, sanctions are unacceptable anywhere at any time with anybody, because they are blunt. They they destroy a whole people. When the bad decisions, which perhaps led to the sanctions, those responsibilities are a handful: the government or members of government or ministers or whoever. They're the ones who made the mistake, not the people, not the children, not the women. Since then, we've had sanctions. Um... Uh, most well, I suppose uh, Syria would have been the most uh, recent. Uh, I- Iran would have been, um, oh, yes. uh, re- even more. Re- Two thousand and fifteen or so was it? Um, but though those sanctions, Syria, it's, it's had a devastating effect. But with Iran, there seems to be an antagonism between Europe and um, and the United States. You had Europe was going to buy oil with euros at one stage, and they seem to they're against the sanctions on Iran. And the United States is it seems to well, it's under Trump, he seems to be for it. Anyways, with regard that the antagonisms between the the five permanent members of the Security Council now, how do you see the Security Council evolving in, into the future? Yeah, let me just say that, that sanctions are attractive um, because they're cheap, uh, whereas warfare is a much more expensive operation, loss of life, loss of material, and so on. So for many countries to impose sanctions or agree to support sanctions on somebody else for, for whatever reason, 
is a very simple thing to do and, and it seems seemingly painless. But I consider it, uh, it the consequences can be genocidal and, and can certainly cause the loss of life. So it's a form of warfare by a different name. The Security Council for the future, I think it's it has to be changed dramatically because the United Nations has failed all over the world. I mean, the, the idea of setting up the UN after the war in 1945 uh, and setting up the Security Council by three distinguished gentlemen called Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt was to control peace, it was to control the well-being of the world. I mean, that's the theory. And in reality, of course, that has not worked because we've been at war ever since. Not the same scale as a world war, but from Korea up into the present day, through Asia, Africa, and in Latin America, and so on. We've seen, and the Middle East, of course, we've seen war uh, continuously ever since. So there's something has gone wrong there. And we have the, as I said before, we have the wrong people in charge of peace and security. I think we need to change that world and make it representational. So, for example, right now there's no African representation on the council. There's no Latin America, uh, India. Huge parts of the world have no permanent seats, no veto power, no real authority in the in in the Security Council. And that can be changed, in my view, by introducing democracy, abolishing the veto power, and having representation. So every major region, like Latin America, would have one permanent seat. Africa would have one permanent seat. Europe, EU would have one permanent seat. North America, for example, would have a permanent seat to be shared between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So you could you could change the work of the council by introducing democracy and representation north and south. It seems to be it's all about the economic interests of the five big powers, although I would say that Britain is going to power will wane over Brexit, but um it seems to be your economic interests of of the state of the of the superpower that's involved. Um, for instance, in West Papua, there doesn't seem to be any um, intervention there, even though there's human rights abuses happening uh, continuously. It never gets brought up. Um, as you were saying, like have it much more dynamic at the moment. Those. Um, those kind of smaller conflicts, for the, for instance, um, West Papua, Western Sahara, with the the uh, people that are, that are in the camps. How do we bring the f- more focus on, onto those those peoples, those conflicts? Yeah. Well, in my view, we've got to begin to respect uh, sovereignty, because when you have a member of the United Nations attacking another member of the United Nations, something is clearly wrong with that. That's in violation of the Charter. It's in violation of human rights. It's in violation of the Geneva Conventions. So we've got to respect that other countries are going to be different from our own and tolerate that and live with it and make it work. And if we want to influence change, maybe it's development money or development change or investment in women's rights or investment in children or investment in the economy and opportunities for you know, a good life and a better standard of living, we can do all that without undermining the local government or the system, we have to recognize that governments and, and peoples are different. And uh, we have no right, in my view, to invade. And, and in my view, warfare, uh, look at Vietnam, for example, or look at, look at, look at, look at um, Iraq itself or, or Afghanistan. The wars that have been fought against these people have destroyed the countries. They've become ungovernable uh, countries because of the war, warfare. 
I mean, that's just nonsense. It, it doesn't resolve anything in my experience. Uh, I mean, Vietnam is now an extraordinarily prosperous country doing wonderful work, they, they, but they're a huge exception. But look at Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, and we've got two major failures. And I think the fact that we don't, uh, talk, we don't like the look of the Taliban or we don't like their culture or maybe their faith, that's not our business. They've got to sort that out for themselves. Uh, we cannot interfere and, and be successful. It's a, it's a long, sad history. In fact, it goes right back to the Crusades when we Christian Europeans thought we could fix everything and then take back Jerusalem and change the world. It doesn't work. I mean, I think the empires, the British Empire has proven, and the Dutch and the Belgians and, and all the rest have proven that these, these intrusions into the countries of the world fail and we exploit, but the failure remains. Would it be more, though, that the large economic bloc, uh, was, uh, particularly the United States and Britain throughout its history, it would be more looking for resources or uh, been able to control those resources to dominate that area so they can have control of those resources rather than, I, I, I don't really think that they, they're too bothered about uh, the culture in these areas. That, you know, realistically, uh, I think it's more um, the resources that are there. Well, I mean, I think that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, with the, with the growth of the British Empire, um, which is, is the easiest model to look at, it's our neighbor after all, and we suffered ourselves under the British Empire um, in terms of not just the famine, but 95% of our land was taken away and given to English or other interested people from the, from the monarchy. Um, I mean, they have exploited, I've forgotten how many countries, 30, 40, 50, 60 countries in the world, taken their resources, undermined their economy, undermined their people, introduced slavery. And we've, you know, slavery was all part of that wealth. So the wealth you find in Britain and in some of the better universities in the United States, for example, comes out of slave, slave uh, earnings and slave uh, wealth. We forget those things. But so Britain is now a very diminished state and has been for quite some years, but they still dream perhaps of an empire that's no longer existing. But they exploited the world, uh, much of the world, very effectively for many, many years. And that gives them the, the old wealth of the past, but of course not today. Going forward, Ireland is going to be part of the, elected onto one of the, the 10 temporary members of the uh, Security Council, I think it starts next year in January in a couple of couple of days' time. What role will Ireland have in that, or how do you see that faring for us? Yeah, I think it's a it's a very courageous uh, step to take that uh, seat on the council because there's tremendous pressure. I mean, I, I I worked for the Security Council when I was in Iraq. I mean, I I had difficulty with them, but I got them to double the program. Uh, to, from to eight and a half billion U.S. dollars a year with the help of the Russians, the French, and the Chinese. So they're but they're tough people, and I've seen uh, countries, small countries like Ireland, put down and excluded. So when the Iraq War, for example, went through the Council, uh, the, the the story is the American ambassador walked across the room and forgot that the mic was open and said to one of these country ambassadors, "That's the last aid program you'll ever have." for not voting with us vis-a-vis -vis Vietnam or whatever the issue was at the time. So the, this, this power is, is, is huge. And I, I worry that Ireland, uh, and Ireland has an extraordinarily, extraordinarily good reputation because of our peacekeeping activities, which go right back to 1960 in the Congo. 
We, above all other peacekeeping countries, and I know this from working with these things, in, I used to be head of human resources of the UN in New York, so I'm well aware that our Irish peacekeeping is extraordinarily successful. We have a wonderful record, wonderful Irish troops who've served for sometimes very difficult jobs, which you know of, perhaps in, in Shadowville or in other places. And um, that that has, I think, got us the seat on the council, I would say, first of all, and we have a right to speak. But we have to have now have the courage to speak when our friends and allies, including the United States, don't agree with us, and we don't agree with them. I mean, the first that's why we're now faced with the problem of Shannon Airport. We're faced with NATO. Uh, we, 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 we need the courage to oppose American hegemony and violence and, and use of warfare, and that's going to be very difficult for a small country, which depends on direct investment uh, and, and all the other goodies that come from American interest in this country. I remember listening to a, an interview with George Galloway and he was bringing up United States atrocities and um, and the presenter said that we rely on foreign direct investment. It was in relation to Shannon and that's why we should just kind of turn a blind eye to it. We could be forced into a lot of situations where we, we'd have to, well, they'd capitulate and just go along with the flow, so to speak. There would be a, a risk of that, would there? Yeah, that's that is that's my great concern. I mean, if I'd been asked, I would have recommended we we not take that post, not take that seat on the council, because we will get sucked into bad decisions which we don't approve of, which will undermine our commitment to the charter and to human rights, and will undermit undermine our our uh, military neutrality. That's the danger. I'm not saying it will happen. Hopefully, it won't. But it takes great courage for a small country like ours to stand up to big powers who invest or, or don't invest to employ, I've forgotten the figures, that almost half a million people in this country now live or are employed by companies from American direct investment and, and other parts of the world. So we are, we're vulnerable, but we have a good reputation. We've done some great work in peacekeeping, as I said. We're going to have to stand up and, 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 and be, be courageous and, and say the right thing and maybe lose a few friends, but hang on to our integrity, which I think is very important. But looking at uh, the PESCO, um, Ireland, it was out in Mali uh, supporting uh, the French imperial interests in, in, in Africa. It's not looking too, uh, too promising, is it? Well, you, you've picked, of course, the most perfect example of, 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 a, of a mistake and that we, we allowed Irish troops, peacekeepers and peacekeepers plus perhaps, to get involved in a, in a colonial, a post-colonial squabble that the French, of course, want to win and continue to exploit one of their former colonial possessions. And that's a mistake in my view, and I think everybody involved with Shannon and the worry of Shannon would, would agree with me. We, we cannot allow Irish troops to get into, into situations along with NATO or any other endeavor, like a, like a post-colonial endeavor that the French are involved in, in their, some of their older possessions in Africa. Yeah, we've also got the um, build-up of, of troops in um, in Eastern Europe facing Russia, and then you have the Pacific encirclement of of China. With the growth of of China as a as an economic power, and there's predictions that it'll, it'll overtake uh, the United States at some stage. I think it's thirty thirty three. Their GDP will be bigger. They'll have more, um, and Russia is there as well and then you had what what happened in um in syria where you had direct 
conflict between the Security Council, Russia, and the United States and Britain and the West. With that, those type of antagonisms in the Security Council, looking ahead, it's a difficult road for Ireland and for the world itself. Well, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's very frightening. And uh, when you realize we have, I've forgotten, five, ten million nuclear warheads around the world between the people you've mentioned and others, and that all of these warheads are two or three times the size of the weapons used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. I mean, we can blow ourselves up to, you know, tomorrow if, if somebody makes a mistake. And it's, it's a t- ridiculously dangerous situation to be in and, and totally redundant. I mean, if we can get rid of these weapons and you put the money and the power maybe into uh, <clears throat> into human well-being, into climate change and controlling our destruction of our own planet, we'd be much wiser and much better off. But there's there's this unending fear. I mean, I, Russia today is a very is quite a small um, population. Uh, it's not the Soviet Union that we we know of the past. Uh, China may have grown. Uh, hugely in, in economic terms, but the fact is the European Union is still a larger economy uh, than than China and the United States. We, the 450 million of the EU is the most powerful economic bloc in the world. But we just have to learn to live with each other. And we, I mean, we go shopping, and you, everything you pick up—not not exactly many things you pick up—have a Chinese label on them. They've done very well. They they have cheap labor and they produce very effectively. They make iPhones that are made in China, for example. So, I mean, we, we, we've got to live with each other. And, and warfare has never proven to be uh, added value, successful. I mean, what do we lose? 70 million people died, I think, in, in the Second World War. Is that something we want to um, perpetuate? I don't not. think so. No, exactly. It's crazy stuff. Looking at that and what you've said, we'd have to create a different economic system, one that isn't competitive one that's not looking for especially with climate change even looking at at zero growth a different economic system you know that's not built on on competition not built you know on 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 expansion and and getting bigger that that would be the only way forward the trouble is we seem to be too many of us are too wedded to capitalism and we've seen in recent years the inequalities have grown Many people have suffered dreadfully in the last 10, 20 years, thousands, millions of refugees, countries in terrible shape, and meantime, millionaires are now billionaires. I mean, it's completely skewed. We've lost control of, I think, the the way to do business with each other and live with each other. I agree with you entirely. I don't, I can't just sort of give you the answers or solutions, but they're, they're clearly, there's another way to do business. And we need to, I mean, if we just use the, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which which guarantees everybody the right to a home, to food, to education, to opportunities, to to well-being, to happiness. If we could only follow that instruction and and pursue it, we don't need to be have billionaires. We don't need to you know drive Rolls Royces, but we can all have a reasonable standard of living before it's too late and before we destroy each other and destroy the world around us. Absolutely. Moving back to the conflict and war how do we get the message across to people there seems to be a um i suppose a an almost disconnect because there's wars ever so i i remember well ever since i was in my teens i remember watching the 
first Iraq the Gulf War in 1991 on television, the, the macabre spectacle of, of bombing people on television. If we become desensitized to this, how do we get that message out? Now, John Pillager's um, documentary that you were involved, Paying the Price, Killing the Children of Iraq, I, I'd urge people to watch that. Um, it's a hard watch, but it, it, it's one of the, it really gets the message across. A lot of this is, you'd have to go look for, searching for it to research it. But how do we make this, what happens in war and what happens in, with these sanctions and what happens with, with um, how, how do we make it? I know this is probably an unfair question, but how do we make this, get this into the, the we'll get it into, into mindsets of people and get them to think about it and, and, and to change their approach to the way we live it seems to the mainstream media doesn't seem to, unless it's uh, if it's topical at the time, they don't seem to have any, um, you know, they don't report on it. Um, I, what got my uh, switched me on to looking at what was happening? I, I seen this Four Corners documentary in. Um, I'm born in Australia, so I keep abreast of affairs what's going on there. And an Australian Special Forces soldier blatantly murdered uh, an Afghani man, Dad Muhammad, on on television. You could see it on his web camera. It, just, it was just murder. Um, yeah. That gets it across. Then if we look back at when the when 2003, we had 100,000 people in Dublin, marched uh, Sydney, there was another t- couple of hundred thousand people. London, there was... A million people. Nobody seems to listen. That's right. I mean, I, I was in that march in London and and in Dublin the following day when a huge turnout of normal people with prams and babies and grannies and uncles and aunties and all the rest of it. It wasn't. It wasn't a, the activist lot. It was the it was the whole world. <clears throat> I, I, but no, as you said, nobody pays attention to us. And um, I think we've become, uh, despite all the exposure which we get nowadays if you look at al jazeera you'll see a lot of the horrors that go on in the world as we speak but the the tragedies of um the consequences of warfare i mean i I hate to say it because your your listeners are going to be offended but the fact is that we white european christians who pursued slavery who pursued colonialism who destroyed much of the world who who we've, we've, we've lost our soul. We, we tolerate the massacres, the killings, the tortures in places like Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, in, uh, using Agent Orange in, in Vietnam or, or all the other things that you've implied that we, we can't go on to list. We've become, uh, somehow they're not, they're not like us, they're different or they're, they're Arabs or they're Asians or they're Africans and therefore we don't feel their pain to the same extent as we would if we had, uh, you know, some, some calamities in our own neighborhood or in our own villages or next door and so on. We, we've just lost our capacity, I think, to recognize that warfare and killing people is, is, not, is not a good thing. It makes no sense, and it's, it spoils the lives of, of millions, and I think it spoils the, the well-being of those of us who are wealthy and have military authority and military power and pursue warfare as a means for change. And that's, to me, that, that's got to stop. Absolutely. Dennis Holliday, thanks very much. Thank you. You're most welcome. Now, I maintain that only... <laughs>
This is the final segment of the podcast. I'm joined by Denise O'Toole of Northwest Activists and part of this podcast team. I'm also joined by James O'Toole of Rebel Telly. We're going to continue our discussion on imperialism and war and its consequences. Denise, I'll go to you first, Denise, because you've been following this with the production side and that. Hi, Danny. Hi, James. Um, okay, so I was just uh, doing some follow-up notes and reading a bit, um, just reflecting back over the last couple of weeks. And we have, um, like, obviously the podcast was about the Australian Special Defence Forces and the atrocities that they've committed coming to light. But just kind of globally, um, I just was reading up that Trump pardoned um, these Blackwater worldwide contractors. He pardoned for people who've, like, basically um, been done for genocide. They've, they've been convicted um, they they broke the Geneva Conventions, and what I noticed reading, like uh, even on a very kind of basic level, um, just the language that's been used, kind of in the media, um, comments like kind of headlines like um, undermining humanitarian law and human rights on a global level, and. What I've kind of observed is that even with Ireland getting its seat on this UN Security Council, like it's seen as such a privilege for like these classes to achieve this. But and and Ireland led a big campaign to get this special seat. But like you've got all these like highly educated elite who are um they they're still powerless against the the imperialists on this council and you know the average person like isn't going to get near this council but even like they feel like they're they're you know it's, it's been heralded as this amazing achievement for Ireland and that they're using language like that Ireland are going to find consensus and, and help you know find a way around these vetoes that have more or less destroyed the council Um, I just feel though looking at it um, it doesn't really seem to matter anymore how many PhDs people have in humanitarian law or, you know, just like hundreds and hundreds of educated people on the UN. But imperialism from slavery right up till now, it, it's still killing millions of people and the educated classes, the you know, uh, they can, they can wax lyrical all they want, but they're, they're not making really significant changes. That's kind of my take. Yeah. When you were on about the Blackwater people, uh, the, I think there was four of them. There was also a guy that I came across, Eddie Gallagher, Chief Petty Officer and U.S. Navy SEAL, who mur- blatantly murdered, uh, an Afghan fella uh, on video and, um, horrific stuff, disgusting. And he was, he was pardoned by Trump as well. Um, but I do see, though, the pessimism of, of the whole situation is... Um, but the, I do see, though, 
if enough people wrote to Simon Coveney, and if you got enough enough people emailing, uh, I think it's Geraldine Byrne Nason is the Ireland's representative yeah. on the council. Like this is the fourth time. The last time that we were on the Security Council was actually in two thousand and one, two thousand and three, around when when the Twin Towers happened. Uh, and now we've had all that war since. We've had war and all the atrocities and all the stuff that's came out since. So now was the time to put the pressure on them. Like I know I'm very pessimistic all myself as well. It's probably rubbed off on you as well, but. Um, <laughs> My New Year's resolution on stopping pessimistic, and I think that we, we'll uh, we can make an impression on it. The anti-war movement across the world, I think, is is growing. With in Australia, it's growing with all that's happened over there. Although they're not in the Security Council Council this time, but they're a major imperialist power. Uh, I I think though there there is op- optimism out there, James. I'll just go to you because I was discussing with you earlier on that Lenin's imperialism, and in fact, we're actually going to call this episode imperialism the highest stage of capitalism if you just go into that because that's quite interesting i i would urge people to read imperialism the highest stage of capitalism um came out in 1916 i think it was he wrote that during the 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 midst of the first world war it's like prophecy for today like because it's the same system and the same stuff happening uh again basically if you want to come in there james yeah, I, I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, other uh, contributions have kind of mentioned the Australian atrocities and, you know, some of the terrible things that imperialism does. But often uh, when the system is caught out and, you know, as you said, that guy holding up someone's head and, you know, when these atrocities are revealed, they try to paint it as if there's like bad apples and that it's good capitalism or bad capitalism and it's all about individuals. Whereas I think the strength of uh, Lenin's analysis is that he, he ties imperialism to the very structure of corporate capitalism. So he points out how it's actually the economic system that produces competition. And when economic competition becomes political competition, and then competition between various uh, blocks of capitalists, it spills over into war. And I think that that's hugely important uh, because it actually implicates the system itself and shows that war, uh, although sometimes sparked by the accident of personality or the accident of a leader, uh, actually the non-accidental or the things that go be on behind, you know, whether Obama is in or Trump is in, you know, America is still dropping drones because certain regions are, are, are dropping bombs from drones because certain regions are in their uh, strategic interest. But I think Lenin's analysis, he started with, you know, the boom bust cycle in the 1800s. You know, you have a boom, you know, capitalism lurches forward, then you have a collapse and a bust. Some companies survive and they buy up their rivals. We saw that after the bank bailout here. The companies that survive get bigger and bigger and bigger. They control more. Uh, you know, they have more political uh, influence. They can control the political uh, policies of their country because they become so strategically important. But what happened in England was that uh, in the eight, late 1800s was that you, you have these companies who have a problem that us working class people never have. Uh, which is that they've too much money and there aren't enough profitable outlets. So the English capitalists were like, Jesus, we're flush lads. We've too much capital, too much money, and we've no profitable outlets. So there was a danger that the system would collapse. And so they needed to raid colonies to create markets. So they created famines in India by, you know, importing uh, their cotton and stuff like that, their linens. And, you know, the same thing happened across the world. So you had England was solving uh, an economic problem that they had 
you know, derived from the boom bust cycle, the fact that the English capitalists had too much capital, too much money, by robbing uh, colonies around the world and then exporting capital to those colonies. Uh, Germany, uh, you know, had the same problem that, you know, they had this boom bust cycle. But what they did was the state stepped in and consolidated the companies after each bust. And so England and Germany pursued two different strategies. England uh, went for the colony strategy to solve economic crisis. Germany went for consolidation and produced these big, huge, giant corporations. But at a certain point, the English capitalists faced another crisis because, you know, okay, you export capital to the colonies and then more profits come back. So you're even more flush than you were at the start. So then they go, Jesus, we've no profitable outlets and the colony thing isn't working. So then England embarked on the process of consolidation that Germany had. But then Germany is like, well, we've already done consolidation, so we need to grab some colonies. But England and, and Portugal and Spain and all these other countries have already grabbed all the colonies. So Germany was like, well, if we go grab colonies, we're going to have to go to war with England. So in other words, starting from the boom-bust cycle and the growth of, of uh, corporations, you know, the consolidation of corporate power, corporations uh, and banks and financial institutions become bigger players on the political scene because they've so much control over the economy. Lenin starts from that, the inner workings of capitalism and the capitalist economy, and takes you all the way up to, you know, uh, the, the, the root of World War One. And so what Lenin is saying is that even if Archduke Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, you know, most people say, oh, World War One that was caused because an arch, Archduke was shot by a Serbian nationalist. What Lenin is saying is, if that war hadn't started on that date, there would have been an excuse for the war a week later, two weeks later, two months later, or even a year later. But the war would have happened because it was a necessity for it to happen in terms of sorting out this huge competition between uh, England and Germany. So I think that that's why Lenin's important for us today, because it exposes how the grotesque and uh, unequal society that we live under that exploits working class people you know, for profit, that actually the inequality and the suffering of working class people, that we should have solidarity with the victims of imperialism in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, because we're all victims of the same uh, the same system. Yeah, people don't have that analysis. And many people that would read Lenin's um, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, select few that would read it. But I think with, you could see those power blocks merging again you when it started off um 1991 you had the collapse of the soviet union that was so the united states was kind of on its own but now you have china which is a big major power that's kind of a it's not invading places but it's through finance it's kind of taken over places buying up large tracts of africa you have russia that's that's emerging as well so you're you're having this competition between those and they're, they're the ones that are in control of the Security Council as well, which I find, uh, and they're the ones that supply all the arms to everybody as well. So I think there is an opportunity with Ireland, uh, so long as we're able to get messages across and it's not um, it's not too highfalutin in that. But if we get the message yeah. across that basically there, there is an opportunity here. We, we are on the Security Council. The last time we were on the Security Council was, was 2001, 2000, just at, after the, um, the Twin Towers when there was that whole nonsense about, you know, we have to go to Afghanistan to 
find Saudi terrorists for some reason that were in Afghanistan. Like, you know, we have to invade them, you know, and all of that. And all the stuff that's happened with, with the Australian troops and the stuff that with, with Blackwater and all that, I think there's an opportunity there. But I think Lenin's analysis is spot on. When I was researching for this podcast, I had a reread of it anyways. Like, but um, it's interesting, though, because it's capital that they're exporting to other countries. Like, you can see it with China taking up Africa and that. Like, Lenin talks about, about that once, the, once they've monopolized enough in their own um, in their, in their own sphere. Like, they start to loans to nation states where it is um, to the creditors' benefit, obviously. Like, but... Um, your thoughts going forward, James, do you think there's an opportunity there for the anti-war movement with what's going on since um, in 1991? I mean, just before talking, really just to answering your question about the opportunities, I think it's important to say, just pick up on a point that you made about the uh, nature of imperialism in the present day and the, the, the uh, rise of kind of new power blocks, and, you know, because I think that's important in terms of situating where we are. And I think after uh, Lenin's death, the world kind of profoundly changed after World War II because you had loads of national liberation movements. Uh, and as you mentioned there, um, you know, Lenin talks about death. But actually, the fact that the global kind of superpowers, kind of especially, well, Britain predominantly before World War II, they gave up kind of their direct ownership of countries. And they moved uh, to more subtle ways of controlling countries. So, you know, they'd use, uh, nowadays it would be debt leverage, for example, uh, to, to control African countries uh, that are in debt, you know, either hugely indebted to the IMF, the World Bank, or now China is moving in and becoming a huge uh, creditor to, to, to the world. Um, so there's a, it's a, colonialism has kind of changed its form. It's not about sending your troops in and raising your own flag. Uh, often they rule through uh, puppet regimes and there's the illusion of independence, whereas in fact the uh, real power lies with the corporations. And also the national liberation movements and the change of the transformation of colonialism after World War II meant that uh, instead of exporting capital to the develop developing world, the developed countries to export capital to each other. So actually, if you look at a, if you look at a graph of capital flows, the money goes from the USA to China, from China to Europe, from Europe to China, from the USA to China. So the Chinese loan the Americans money, and the Americans use the money they've got off China to buy Chinese goods. So there's this circular, uh, circular, you know, there's this circuit of of capital that's quite circular, but it remains within the developed world. And the the uh, kind of corporate colonization and debt leverage now is used to steal resources. So, for example, they'll put in a client regime uh, that's subordinate to the U.S. corporations in an African country, and they'll use their debt leverage to get that government to do what they want, and they'll steal resources. For example, coltan, you know, like uh, the minerals that we need for uh, the manufacture of mobile phones and stuff like that. So I, I still think that despite those changes, I still think Lenin's framework is a great starting point for understanding them. But then you just have to trace the history from Lenin's death to the present day to kind of understand uh, how imperialism works right now. And I do think that, you know, as you said, since 91, there's been uh, opposition to imperialism. And I really think the anti-war movement, you know, that was on the streets from 2001 and reached its peak in 2003, I think that globally that embedded 
a quite a, a popular anti-war sentiment amongst the you know a, a, a huge layer of people. So I think that you know even though that movement hasn't been uh, on the streets in such a uh, huge numbers as it did, uh, you know, when the war in Iraq was about to happen, I think that that movement did. Uh, generate a huge shift in consciousness in terms of imperialism and stuff like that. I still think most Irish people uh, take neutrality seriously, even though we know that our ruling class never have and that Ireland isn't neutral. They've always wanted to be in the CIA West kind of orbit. But uh, I think most people uh, take neutrality seriously. And I think most people, you know, uh, you know, don't want US food, Shannon and stuff like that. So I think, as you were saying, the Security Council thing, offers an opportunity to put pressure on people like Coveney. So I think you're dead right there, you know. Denise, do you want to come in there? Uh, yeah, I'll come back to that as well. Um, Dennis uh, Holiday, he basically mentioned a few times um, concerns and he felt Ireland was courageous to take this seat. Um, he said he's concerned it'll undermine our commitment to the UN Charter and human rights, just coming back to the human rights thing, but also the USA being an employer, like the half a million, they say half a million people employed by uh, large USA companies and stuff. He brought up both those points. But I think that for all the activists and, and people who've been, you know, drawn attention to US troops going through Shannon, that is definitely um, for, for, for that. It's going to be a brilliant chance to highlight the human rights abuses that the Irish government have been you know, complicit in. So that's going to be the positive I'm going to take from it, that it's a, an opportunity there for activists. Yeah, there's rendition flights that are going through there. There's, um, and that fella, Edward Gallagher, that, that, um, that murdered the Afghan teenager. Now, he was only a young fella. He was an ISIS fighter, all right, but he was unarmed at the time. He, But Edward Gallagher, he could have flown through there. Uh, so could have the, the those guys uh, from Blackwater, like you know, like who's who's what type of troops are actually going through there? And I would urge people again to to look at the Four Corners documentary. It's an Australian television program, and I I was brought up there, so I, I kind of keep abreast of of Australian current affairs. But watch that; it's endemic within the Australian Defence Forces. There's so many of the, it's all coming out. But there was fellas with moral moral courage, so to speak. There were a Brandon. I forget his name now, but he's he's one of the main whistleblowers. But the the Australian state then they raided the ABC, the television network that tried to expose it, that runs Four Corners program. They um they brought charges against some of the fellas that brought the atrocities to light. So there's there's that whole cover up of of it as well. But I think though, because we're a neutral country too, it's kind of or supposedly neutral country, even though we have actually um, our Irish ranger unit is down in Mali helping French imperialists sort out some imperial thing from the past. Even though th- there's this idea that we're do- it doesn't concern us. And we've, as Dennis Holliday mentioned in, during the interview, we have done an awful lot of good work in the UN as peacekeepers, been out. But I think there is that, that disconnect between it's not, um, it doesn't affect us. And, but what I think, go, just going back to Lenin again, Lenin gives the whole interconnectedness of, of it, the format. It's because it's the same, same system when that was published in 1916. But we'll finish up, uh, James, I'll just go back to you for any closing comments. 
I think that uh, imperialism is is going to be a continuing issue. You know, I think that you know war and imperialism. It's like people tend to think, as I said at the start, that it's a question of individuals. You know, that like if the Americans elect a nice president, then you know there's there's going to be less war. But actually, if you look at the the history of uh, you know whether Democrats or Republicans are in power, America has been involved in wars under both. And I think instead of trying to scratch your head and figure out, is it down to the personalities of the president? Actually, to understand that when stealing resources or controlling a strategic asset like oil are in the interests of U.S. corporations, and the U.S. corporations are such huge uh, factors in the economic and political life of a country like the United States, then the state machine, the you know, a U.S. state is going to act in the interests of those corporations. And uh, there's a lot of people who might say that Lenin's analysis is, you know, reductive or it's simple or it's crude. But actually, he gets to the heart of how the world actually works. You know, if you look at the behavior of Blackwater or the corporations that went into Iraq uh, after the 2003 invasion, and you look at the destruction of Iraq uh, public services, you know what Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine? where they use the shock of the invasion to basically just steal Iraq's public services and hand them over to U.S. corporations. You know, I think Lenin's analysis then really shines in terms of trying to get your head around uh, the, compli- you know, the, the complications of why these wars happen and why these, uh, you know, uh, atrocities happen in the context of these wars. Uh, so I think, you know, Lenin can take you from uh, an understanding of the boom-bust cycle and the nature of corporate capitalism and the nature of uh, financial capitalism uh, all the way to, you know, situating that uh, that soldier who beheaded that poor Afghan, you know, to understanding the context within which these atrocities happen. Denise? Um, just to just bring in another point, well, I've already raised it, but the human rights side of it, like that, you know, we keep hearing from, from these elites that you know that there'll be justice there'll be you know people brought to to answer for for their crimes and like literally australia usa uk like all those basically every country on that council has like broken the geneva convention and basically they're not being held responsible really they're you know because that's something i read today they're saying the commanders are like are kind of giving out the orders, the troops are committing the atrocities, the commanders are not necessarily being punished, even though it is um, a war crime for, for someone to give out the orders as much as it is for the person to act out the orders. But I I just feel that there's uh, too much kind of like international language of diplomacy and not enough um, action being taken to bring the actual imperialists to justice and I don't see that there there will be. Yeah, that's a good point because in the Australian situation it's all the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. Like obviously like if the, if the non-commissioned officers are involved, obviously the the officers from the officer class, the you know the the ones that went to the the academy and learnt uh, warfare and all, they have to have known. Uh, in fact, in the Cromford report, which is the first report that uh into the Australian atrocities in Afghanistan, she says there's a cycle of it and some of the higher-ups that could be accountable as well. Um, I, I think that's that's a very valid point. But I, again, too, because 
these imperialist powers are in charge of the Security Council. They're the ones that are, are calling the shots. And as Dennis Halliday said, we do need a, a reform of that structure where, the, where you have somebody, mm-hmm. an African country, there's a permanent seat for an African Africa, there's a permanent seat for some somewhere else in the South Pacific. And he was, well, we're running out of time. And he was, I'm just going to give a mention to a few things before we go. Ireland for a World Beyond War are hosting Wednesday webinars running every Wednesday from the 13th of January until the 10th of February. The link is in the description. Music by Pater Hopkins, Denise O'Toole produced. Thanks to our guests, Eleanor Morley, Dennis Halliday, James O'Toole. That's it from us. Hold the buggies, long the foil. Under a socialist reorganization of society.